home prices, real estate, uh, the cost of elite education, you know, these things passing on their status was becoming further and further out of reach, even for people in, say, the upper 5% uh, of income earners. This dynamic was driving a lot of um, newer political radicalism. We're back with The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. We're speaking with Julius Krenz today. He's the editor of American Affairs Journal. They began a number of years ago because they believe that the traditional partisan platforms today are no longer relevant to meet the needs of the most pressing challenges faced in the US. We meet up with Julius to discuss some of those topics, along with the elite power struggle going on in America, and the underlying dynamics of the real class war. Julius, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to it. So um, I came across your work at American Affairs, the uh, journal publication that you're an editor at. And, you know, you've got some great stuff there. There's a lot of other great content there. Um, But, you know, like... You're you're a young guy, and I'm so curious where where did you be, first get your interest in politics, and and like you dive into some pretty in depth topics there. So like, ha- have you just been interested since you know, yeah, young little kid running around the playground, or like, is this the thing you more evolve later on in your life? Uh, I've probably been interested in politics since a pretty young age. Um, I sort of got my first maybe real taste of it or started meeting, you know, actual politicians and so on in college. Um, and then after that, I actually, I went into finance, uh, and investing, um, which was my main career for about 10 years. I was kind of on the periphery of, of political activity, um, but not really fully engaged in it. And then around 2015, 2016, uh, American affairs sort of came together by accident. Uh, and I've been focused on that primarily now for the last five or six years. Awesome. So like, uh, what was that accident? Yeah, well, it basically, um, I, I have ended up seeing like a Trump campaign event on C-SPAN. This is like fall 2015. And, you know, at that time I had sort of thought this, this is just a joke. It's another celebrity candidate. It doesn't matter. But after I watched that, I thought, wow, this guy's going to win the Republican primary and ended Mm. up actually having a number of friends in finance, mostly um, who were sort of thinking the same thing. And we initially published some of our musings on this topic in kind of uh, regular publications or conservative publications. And then after a time, Trump remained sort of ahead in the polls and nobody really wanted to publish them anymore. you know, huh. they didn't want uh, him to win. And even though what we were saying, it wasn't wasn't like Trump boosting material, but it wasn't, you know, critical of Trump in the in the narrow sense that he's going to lose or whatever. Um, and so nobody wanted to publish that. So we ended up starting this silly little anonymous blog called the Journal of American Greatness, uh, which ended up becoming a lot more popular than we ever expected and actually caused a lot of problems for everybody because we all had other jobs and uh Thought we might lose them if people found out who was actually behind this. <laughs> uh, but the experience did suggest that there was a real appetite for the sort of thing we were writing. And um, we decided we wanted to keep doing it, but do it under our own names and more seriously. Um, so that's sort of uh, how American Affairs was born. 
Fascinating. So it was originally anonymous writings? It was, yeah. It and was. who, who's in, like initially this, uh, this blog, but also if it's the same now, like who's engaging with this? Is it people that are craving that more conservative intellectual arguments or is it people on the left are like, oh, finally some stuff that we can, you know, bat back and forth outside of memes and, you know, uh, people would say Trumpisms and things like that. Well, uh, initially, because it, it was during the Republican primary, a lot of the content was sort of focused around that. And I think the main audience at that time would have been um, – you know, people interested in Republican Party politics, generally speaking, people are kind of the the upper end. I mean, it was never, even though it became fairly popular, it was never like a mass media thing. So it, it would have been, you know, other journalists, politicians, other kind of intellectuals, that sort of milieu. Um, that was the blog. When we started the journal, uh, that ended up having a lot wider ide- audience, I would say, ideologically. So And at this point, you know, our contributors really come from all over the map. I would say it's Mm. probably 50-50 people from right and left backgrounds um, writing for it. And as far as I can tell, uh, it's a similar dynamic among the audience. Uh, It has, you know, both fans and detractors among the right, among the left, and even among uh, what you might call the centrists or kind of Clinton Democrats and things like that. So... Uh, I think the blog was weird. It was something definitely different. I think the journal also is is fairly unique in the media landscape. And one of the things we learned from the blog, uh, or at least what surprised us, was that our our long form kind of even, I dare say, philosophical pieces tended to get a lot more traction and audience hmm. than kind of your usual political hit and run type blog posts. Uh, and so that was one reason why we decided to make American Affairs, you know, a pretty in-depth, long-form, uh, fairly demanding publication, I would say, because uh, I think there is, or, or that that niche is, is just underserved in today's media landscape. Yeah. Why do you think there was a, a lacking there? Uh, I mean, in general, I think the market dynamics of social media and social media driven traffic and the kind of internet ad model um, don't really support the kind of long in-depth often technical pieces that are are just not going to go viral uh, in the conventional way. Um, I also think, you know, if you've read Matt Taibbi's book called hate Inc on the media, I strongly recommend it. Um, he discusses, you know, that there is a dynamic among contemporary political media to, to drive audience by basically turning politics into a sport. And, you know, that's where mm. you get this kind of very tribalistic uh, coverage in the media, one side versus another. And the, well, there are many drawbacks to that, but one of them is that you can't really adequately cover the major problems in U.S. politics, which tend to be both sides tend to contribute to. Um, so if you take an mm-hmm. issue like deindustrialization, something we focus a lot on, that's not just the Republican Democrat thing. You cannot blame the Democrats for that. You can't blame only the Republicans for that. Uh, 
that was a bipartisan consensus. You can say the same with a lot of other issues, a lot of foreign policy mistakes and so on. And I don't think today's media landscape really has a way to properly address issues that don't fit into a kind of partisan battle style framework. Um, but that is something that we're able to do, uh, though, it, though it's not necessarily easy. Yeah, no, that is not easy. And, you know, I that really makes me think of, um, and there's so many different terms for this, but like um, the idea of a neoliberal economic framework and how both sides seem to progress that framework in, in the agenda, but in their own kind of partisan ways. And so it's like, there's not a way to engage politically in a realistic manner where you can vote against that in a lot of ways. And it almost sounds like you're touching on that a little bit there, or am I kind of taking this a different direction that you weren't really headed? Uh, well, I think that's true. Um, and it's certainly the case that until very recently, um, the mainstream of both parties was solidly neoliberal when it came to economic policy. Both sides, you know, both Clintons and Bushes, for example, were in favor of uh, more free trade, uh, more financial deregulation, um, interventionist foreign policy of, of various kinds, uh, and, and on down the list. I think in recent years, what you've seen, uh, well, you know, if you go back to 2016, you saw for the first time some real challenges to that from within both parties, uh, Trump on the right and Bernie Sanders uh, on the left. And you even had a moment there maybe in 2015, 2016, where Trump was still um, complaining about hedge funds and Sanders was still arguing against open borders immigration, uh, where it looked like there was a chance for uh, novel forms of political cooperation, new realignment, uh, to use a common term, uh, being possible. I feel like the momentum for that has stalled a bit, and there's probably a lot less cross-partisan dialogue of that sort now. Um, but within the two camps, there's certainly still a lot of challenges, a lot of debates, a lot of uh, internal disagreements going on um, that suggests that, you know, these questions will be live ones for a while. Mm hmm. So you wrote a great article about uh, the class war that's going on in the U.S. And I definitely recommend folks to go over and read that. Um, if you, you know, find this conversation interesting at all, it's probably going to be much more in depth. Um, but so help us understand where has this class war begun? Well, the article that I wrote was called the, the real class war. Um, and what I was sort of responding to was, you know, once the Trump phenomenon got started, uh, we had a wave of new attention, uh, which is still still happening, I think, being turned toward uh, the working class in the United States in particular and um, the kind of left behind working class and wage stagnation, uh, deaths of despair, opioid addiction, all of these issues um, that have really been, you know, occurring for decades, uh, 30 plus years. And um, much less attention, not, and I'm not in any way saying that we shouldn't pay attention to those things. That's not my point. But there was much less attention being paid to the intra-elite uh, disputes and 
class mm. differences and dynamics that were occurring at the same time. And to some extent, as I argue, underlying some of that new approach to uh, or new attention being paid to the working class issues. And in particular, you know, what I focus on in that piece was just the widening gap between uh, what you might call, you know, uh, the sort of oligarchs uh, or the, the major capital holders in, you know, the, the top 0.1% or so, uh, which really, you know, have taken off. Uh, you look at incomes or assets, you know, you're looking at 300% plus growth um, over the last few decades since, since the year 2000, let's say, uh, versus what is often termed the uh, professional managerial class, PMC, or upper middle class, the kind of professional, high-end professional labor that is still paid very well um, and has still maintained their relative wealth share, uh, but which in a relative sense is declining uh, relative to the top 0.1%, and which also I think this is somewhat subjective, but I, I, I don't think it's too controversial to say that it also has become more precarious um, looking at, hmm. say, jobs in academia or journalism uh, or even parts of finance uh, and so on. Uh, these sort of upper middle class professional careers um, are a uh, not as not as secure as they they once were. Um, and also people in them have a much harder time passing on that status to their children. Uh, you know, you have a lot more cases with college graduates living at home. Uh, most college graduates, or at least the, I think it was, it's still a majority. Um, I haven't looked at the statistics in a little while, but at the time of the article, it was, it was more than half, you know, couldn't find jobs in, the, in their field of study, uh, that sort of thing. And given the rise in asset prices, uh, particularly home prices, real estate, uh, the cost of elite education, you know, these things passing on their status was becoming further and further out of reach, even for people in, say, the upper 5% uh, of income earners uh, and, and high-end professional labor like that. So what I argue is, is um, you know, this dynamic was driving a lot of um, newer political radicalism uh, among hmm. this demographic. Uh, and, you know, one could see that, for example, in the kind of support base of, of Elizabeth Warren, um, who was, you know, further to the left on economics than, you know, certainly the kind of Clinton mainstream of the Democratic Party or many other primary opponents, um, but actually had the backing of uh, a higher percentage of people earning over $100,000 a year, uh, stuff like that. And even, even the, the Bernie Sanders uh, support base, um, you know, had a fair amount of uh, you know, people that you would consider fairly professional class, people with advanced degrees, stuff like that. So it that's kind of my starting point with that article to try to explain um, some of these maybe unexpected changes in internal elite political dynamics uh, and to, to isolate some of the, the new strands of the current political confusion that we currently have. <laughs> yeah, we've got some of that kicking around. Um, so... If, if you could, and maybe you can't, that's fine, but if you could peg this down, like, who is the power struggle between? I don't know if, like, using um, percentages of, of earning income or, like, really, who, who are these two sides here? Um, I would effectively, I think the easiest proxy would be people that um, 
make most of their income uh, or enjoy most of their wealth through capital gains uh, versus those who were reliant on earned income or salaries. Uh, and part of the struggle or the problem may be that it's you know increasingly difficult for people with even high salaries to accumulate significant assets or capital. Um, you know, if you look at, and again, I wrote this article pre-pandemic, there may be some updates uh, might be necessary in a post-pandemic world because uh, a lot has changed, although I think the general thrust is still there. But um, if we go mm -hmm. back to San Francisco pre-pandemic, you had, a, you know, the, I think the poverty threshold at the time was something like earning $117,000 a year, which, would, which yeah. would put you in like the top 25%, I think, in, in the U.S. as a whole. Um, so people earning pretty strong incomes, but actually still could never afford to buy a house, um, could never really uh, accumulate a significant asset portfolio. Um, and that, that, again, contributes to the sense of insecurity and precarity and just, uh, you know, is symbolic of, a, of significantly different economic interests between the two uh, segments of the elite. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like it's, um, I mean, this is oversimplification, but like an elite power struggle almost. What about the person who's, you know, not in either of those categories, but they very, very much feel like it's an us versus them thing and they're out there fighting for, you know, a, a bigger slice of the pie. Are they effectively not really involved in the outcome of this process? Well, this is a controversial view, but, you know, especially in, in places that uh, think of themselves as democracies or liberal democracies or whatever. But in my view, um, you know, people outside of the elite, and I'm not celebrating this, I'm merely observing it, um, mm -hmm. have very little ability to influence uh, policy legislation, very little, very little political agency in general. Um, and you know, the, the trends that affected uh, the, the uh, lower income groups, as I said, those, those happened between like the 1970s and 2000 um, and, you know, have continued since then uh, for the most part. But they happened a long time ago when you actually had a much stronger and more organized working class, when you still had unions, when you still had um, kind of national civic groups and, and, and better organized uh, working class institutions, and they were really unable to stop, um, you know, what we might call neoliberalization then or the negative mm -hmm. impacts of, of it then. It's hard for me to imagine, you know, in a world where uh, private sector unions are 6% and um, we have this very fractured, very elite driven NGO uh, donor driven politics uh, you know, I think, frankly, their political agency is quite limited. And what has occurred is, you know, in the 1980s, for instance, both the upper middle class and the super rich were still kind of rising. Uh, and so they, they, they were all happy. Uh, but after 2000, you start to see that PMC or upper middle class stagnation while the super rich continued to, to rocket upwards. And, and that's, that I think is, is kind of the decisive economic trend that's, that's pushing forward a lot of kind of upper middle class political radicalism. Hmm. So it almost sounds like 
you know, and I'm really good at oversimplifications here, so please call me out if I'm off base here. But it sounds like the system is is in one way failing to meet the dreams and desires of 99.9% of the nation, which is essentially everybody. And so how come it doesn't change? Um, I think it's in many ways failing for everybody uh, in a different way. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons, one of the issues here, um, I mean, there's a number of them, but to, to just take a few off the top of my head, the first is that the the professional managerial class, and there's a whole set of academic sociology on this that one can, can wade into the weeds into if you want. But I think there's something to it in the sense that they have a very hard time articulating or possessing a clear class consciousness. Um, they have to yeah. sort of project their feelings, their views onto other groups. Uh, and so you get a lot of rhetoric about the you know decline of the working class you know not thirty years too late, um, wherein what they're actually when what they're actually concerned about is is sort of themselves, but they can't really admit it, and this is a problem because it makes it very difficult for them to build uh, a, a real strong um, constituency that could actually really meaningfully change the system and the underlying policy structures. Um, you end up getting you know it's not. There's some serious economic thought there, but, you know, to take a very conventional example, maybe an overused one, but it's often, you know, expressed in very academic language. It's intermixed with a lot of uh, moralistic rhetoric around race issues and stuff like that that tends to be very divisive and make it difficult to build a coalition. Um, And in general, you have a lot of people thinking they're helping the working class, but they don't you know, then they're confused when the working class doesn't really support their their project for, say, free mm-hmm. college or something, which doesn't really do anything, you know, which is actually the working class subsidizing them anyway. Um, the other issue, which I think is quite important and which will be in a... And just, just upcoming, to wrap that one yeah, up, are, are you saying that that's somewhat like the virtue signaling of wokeness by a group of people that aren't really invested? They just are looking for their own economic gains? Well, I probably wouldn't put it in that sort of instrumental of a terminology. I don't think it's like a conspiracy or people aren't like fully conscious of this. It's just that, but it's the way they articulate, the way they articulate these concerns tends to be in the language they are familiar with, which is a Hmm. sort of moralizing cultural argument. Um, often against, you know, past sins or whatever that, you know, have no real current target uh, and so on, and which makes it very difficult um, to address a real concrete problem today, both in terms of building a coalition as well as actually identifying what the problem is. Uh, And it also leads to, you know, maybe doubling down on models of, say, NGO project, uh, political organizing, uh, which, you know, are, are very billionaire dependent and, and probably strengthen mm-hmm. uh, that side in the long run. Um, but the other point I wanted to get at, which is which is related, I think, um, and which will be in an upcoming American Affairs article um, written by uh, one of our contributors, uh, one of our editors, actually, and a good friend of mine, Michael Cuenco, um, is just that... Uh, culture war 
has sort of taken over um, uh, or is now the defining element of political polarization. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, politics has always had a culture war element, but in the past, you could say that, you know, it tended to be different political economic models um, that were at the root of political divides. Uh, One side wanted one economic uh, paradigm, a different side wanted another. Uh, but in the last several decades, um, you know, I w- the political economy has taken a back seat, at least when it comes to sort of party identification, political identification and and, you know, cultural attunements now define whether you're on the right or the left. Uh, and so coalitions like you had with the New Deal, where you had kind of, you know, northern working class groups, often northern ethnic working class combined with uh, the kind of Southern elite, combined with uh, a segment of large businesses and Western, you know, Western interests uh, in, 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 the, in the American West, um, that sort of coalition is almost impossible to imagine now. Uh, you can't really see Southern Democrats uh, and, and New England Democrats um, coming together in the way they did during the, the New Deal. Uh, so that kind of uh, shift in the definition of um, political uh, hmm. partisan alignment or, or what defines that, I think, is another reason why, you know, it's extremely difficult to really see uh, a larger policy realignment. Interesting. So to encapsulate this, I'm trying to get at the, like the the root of the issue here. And so do you think the problem and maybe it's not even one of these I'm going to toss your way, but do you think the problem is too many elites vying for limited power or too many people vying for limited elite positions? Or is it essentially one and the same? Well, um, I feel like that's kind of a restatement of the issue. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, there are, there are too many, too many elites or, or would be elites uh, fighting for, uh, a shrinking number of positions, and that's what breeds this insecurity and precarity uh, and intensification of, of politics and dissatisfaction. But I don't know that that necessarily tells us much um, about what's what's actually driving the scarcity or what's really going on. Uh, after all, there were other, you know, there are other times when um, there seemed to be plenty of opportunities available uh, for for both within the elite, as well as new aspirants entering the elite. Um, And I think, you know, my argument would be, and, you know, you can never isolate one cause for this, but I, I would focus on, uh, I think we've had this deindustrialization of the United States and a narrowing of uh, economic activity or, or really high profit economic activity into a very small set of industries concentrated mm-hmm. around intellectual property rents. Uh, we've published a couple of pieces by Herman Mark Schwartz on this. Uh, you can find them on our website. That'll go into the intellectual property and the economics of that more fully. Um, but for now, I mean, it's, when you have a rent-seeking economy, both in, let's call it, you know, the tech world, Silicon Valley biotech, um, as well as the financial industry, uh, you actually don't really need that many elites, uh, whether it's in the private sector um, to be out, um, you know, managing 
large companies with huge labor forces, major industrial production. You don't need them in the in the public sector, for example, to design New Deal programs uh, or whatever. Um, you basically just have a bunch of people running around trying to capture a portion of a revenue stream tied to an intellectual property rent or some other form of monopoly rent. And I think this does lead to a uh, a decrease or declining number of spots for elite aspirants. Uh, and if you, you know, even in the financial industry, to take a simple example, um, you know, most active man actively managed funds can't beat the index. Um, so it doesn't really, if you're not looking for actual new investments, building new greenfield investments, you don't really need that many people managing money. You could just put all your money in the S and P and, and, you know, let the fed do what it's going to do and, uh, you know, collect your performance. Um, but you still have all these people trained to be in finance and so on, uh, that don't really have a role and it's a shrinking, a shrinking, uh, number of positions. Now that's a little bit of a pre pandemic view. Um, since then, you know, you have so much money and so many assets under management that even if your performance isn't that good, you probably still keep your, uh, still keep your capital, still keep your fund. Um, but it's just a very different uh industry dynamic and elite uh particularly with respect to elite positions and elite reproduction where would you say the key battlegrounds are in this uh, i almost want to say like power struggle um i think there's probably two questions uh one of them would be is it possible for the current set of uh, professional managerial class elites currently polarized around cultural issues to come together, forge some sort of new political movement uh, built more on uh, real economic, uh, political economic concerns, in particular around sort of reindustrializing the country, building state capacity, building productive capacity, uh, and essentially rebuilding the United States, um, reindustrializing the United States. That would be one option to get out of this. The other question mark, uh, which, you know, I think effectively, you know, the oligarchs control uh, are, are the leading voice in, in U.S. politics and U.S. business. Uh, and I think it's an open question whether any of them really want to take responsibility for, you know, society more generally for the country more generally um, right now, they can basically enjoy all the perks without having to take much responsibility for anything. Uh, and if, you know, as long as that lasts, I don't see much changing. I think you'll get a lot of vanity philanthropy and that sort of thing, which we have now. Um, but there have been times in history uh, where you have seen, you know, a real elite come together and, uh, and, and actually take leadership, you know, really uh, exercise leadership and responsibility and, and seek, you know, and I don't like to be moralistic about this, so I'll put it in kind of anti-moralistic terms, but seek something, you know, maybe a greater glory for themselves than, than merely running up uh, paper assets. Hmm. You mentioned earlier, um, or briefly mentioned, that the political affiliations of these um, elite cohorts have shifted over the years. Could you explain a little further what you mean by that? 
Or like how, how have they shifted? Um, I'm not sure exactly um, what you're referring to. I mean, one one thing I discussed in the article is, uh, you know, when sort of as you had the kind of old New Deal order start to decline in the late 60s and 70s and, you know, early on in the, the, the rise of neoliberalism, uh, particularly around Reagan, I think you had a a new discussion and sometimes a very forthright and honest discussion about, you know, running big bureaucracies, running big uh, public or government bureaucracies in particular, uh, that's not going to work anymore. Um, what what you need to be doing is sort of finance, going into the finance industry uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the rise of the yuppies and so on in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you generally could see a lot of shifts uh, or, you know, at least looking back on it, I wasn't there uh, at the time, but um, a shift among, among this kind of upper middle class uh, away from the old kind of new deal, partisan organizations, unions, that sort of thing, more into this, you know, uh, individual entrepreneurship, finance, et cetera. And for a while that was very beneficial and very rewarding and uh, even not just rewarding financially, but I think even creatively and personally. And you saw industries like finance um, with a lot of fascinating characters. There's, there's probably a whole library of books written about finance in the 1980s, and they all have these sort of larger-than-life characters, you know, liars, mm-hmm. poker, uh, and all of that. And people were really, you know, they weren't fully bureaucratized. You could do sort of interesting things. Um, but... Then over time, uh, you know, that was under kind of the Reagan dispensation or kind of greed is good mentality. Uh, And then I think what's what interestingly at a a partisan level, um, you know, Bill Clinton comes in and wins a lot of these voters back. And he does that by more or less keeping and consolidating the kind of basic economic agenda of the Reagan years, free trade, financial uh, deregulation, very pro Wall Street. but also adding to that uh, a kind of moralistic gloss, um, a new sort of new sort of models of kind of uh, social intervention. I'm talking mainly about NGOs, stuff like that. The kind of the World Economic Forum kind of model of dealing with problems where it's not sort of political mm-hmm. mass political action coming together. Let's solve this concrete issue. It's more kind of really rich people and big business philanthropy, we have such goodwill and, you know, we're so nimble and flexible as private organizations and we're thinking globally and all of that. Um, That kind of comes in and I think really captures the imagination uh, of the upper middle class. And maybe that, you know, that becomes kind of the the locus of elite aspirations uh, for a while. Um, But by the time you get to the the 2010s, um, I think a lot of that had gotten stagnant as well. And that's why Mm. You don't see too many fun books written about Wall Street uh, in the 2010s anymore and, you know, the financial crisis and and so on. And most most of these businesses are pretty bureaucratized. You know, the kind of old freewheeling Silicon Valley guy in a garage inventing something great, you know, that's replaced by these huge mega corporations, very bureaucratized. So I think that, you know, um, that kind of halo has also faded and, and that social 
justification for a lot of the a lot of neoliberalism has also kind of run aground. And that may be another reason driving not just partisan shifts, but larger political debates and shifts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. We've been discussing a lot of the um, the dynamics between within the elite structure and the the power there that is either present or not present within within some. And then you mentioned. Um, how the U.S. has changed this. We have these oligarchs, and they more or less have the power, and the um, the state is losing power. Again, broad strokes here. So when I think about empires declining or large uh, powerful nations declining, there is not always, but there's, there's often an element where the state loses power the um, elite, they gain power and then they fight over that power and there's a loss of, um, of a centralized ability to direct the um, culture, the economy, society, and the political will towards these outcomes that are more beneficial in the short and long term. Do you, do you see this as also a challenge with the US this somewhat this this power between these um oligarchs or the elites and the state um yes i might articulate a it a little bit differently i mean i think it's kind of that's a that's why of, you're here cuz no one no one wants to hear yeah, my articulation well, <laughs> i'll do my best um you know that i think the question is kind of what what is kind of the focus of elite aspirations um hmm. and when you have kind of rising nations or empires uh the focus of elite aspirations tends to flow through the state whether building a strong state or hmm. winning kind of honor uh prestige wealth even through sort of strengthening the nation strengthening the state uh and kind of the highest achievements are, are political achievements. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a dissolution or a sense now that, you know, politics is, is completely hopeless. Hmm. And, you know, what you should be doing is basically just go out there, get as much money as you can, uh, kind of build up your own private fiefdom uh, and, and don't worry about it. Uh, or another way to put it is, you know, there are sort of, um, you could call them like patriotic, patriotic oligarchies, uh, who, mm. you know, maybe they want to make money. It's not like they, it's not like they don't have any self-interest. Um, but they see the means to do that through kind of say building up a country's industry, uh, or what have you. And then there are others, non-patriotic non oligarchies, who sort of see themselves as looting from the state, taking whatever they can get. Um, mm. So for example, you know, I did a lot of business um, in Africa, in, in a little bit in Russia, stuff like that. And, you know, it's kind of, to, to, again, to put it in like the least moralistic terms possible, um, you know, the complaint about the Yeltsin years, basically you have a lot of... Um, you know, the, the oligarchs are, are taking an asset. They're able to get an asset from the state because of the breakup of the Soviet Union. They, they're getting it for nothing. And then they're going out and selling it to some foreign buyer 
uh, at more or less a market price. And, and they're taking all those, those earnings and putting them in Swiss bank accounts or hedge funds or whatever. Um, so it's essentially looting the state and you can get phenomenally rich off it. Um, and then there's, you know, other models where, you know, it's, uh, you could argue, uh, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but say like, um, <laughs> South Korea, for instance, in, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, when, when it's really industrializing, where it's not like there isn't any corruption, but the corruption tends to be, you know, if you build this new industry, like you'll get rewarded for it. Um, mm. So again, it, or, or if you, you know, if you go to Nigeria today, um, or, you know, you'll find in many cases, like the, the oligarchs there, they built up everything around for themselves. Like you have to be sort of totally vertically consolidated. So you're building your own roads, you're building your own power plants, uh, you're building your own thing. Um, but you're not building say a nationwide energy grid. Uh, mm -hmm. so in general terms, I think those are, you know, you can have models where there's, you know, they're not necessarily more moral or they, they could be just as corrupt, but the corruption tends toward building up uh, national capacity and you can have oligarchic models where it's hmm. looting the state and essentially uh, destroying or cannibalizing um, uh, domestic capacity. And I, I would say, unfortunately, the U.S. looks more like the latter and has so for a few decades. And do you see that process accelerating, stagnating, decelerating? I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> um <laughs> I have no idea. I, I, I think, you know, there's certainly a, there are a lot of movements now, uh, intellectual movements that are looking at these problems in ways that were not happening 20 years ago or even five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, but they haven't unfortunately attracted a tremendous amount of real institutional strength or support, uh, to date. And, they remain very much subordinate to, I think, a lot of the kind of captured institutions and unhealthy institutions um, that are that are, you know, going in the other direction or very invested in maintaining the status quo uh, and, and still see, I would say, the risk of disrupting the status quo mm -hmm. as greater than than trying to go in a new and what I believe would be a, a healthier direction. So if there could be one conversation that you wish we all as America collectively could have, you know, maybe it's something we're not talked about. Maybe it's power structures uh, between elite. Maybe it's this dynamic of um, oligarchs cannibalizing. What, what would be like a core, core, core issue that you would wish we could all discuss? Um, and all, while we're imagining, I'll add in without much emotion. Well, it's hard to narrow uh, all that down yeah. to one issue, but I would say <laughs> the one that I think is maybe most foundational and one which I also think um, does not need to be emotional is uh, the shift back to, you know, right now we have an asset, basically an asset valuation maximization economy. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote about this um, in a more recent piece called The Value of Nothing, um, which you can find in American Affairs. But Essentially, our, our economy is currently organized around asset prices and high asset prices. Uh, and it needs to be reoriented toward growth and income and profit. Uh, 
And a lot of what's happened, I think, is that, you know, economists, politicians, business people, intellectuals, what have you, um, diluted themselves, maybe sometimes genuinely just didn't didn't think about this or in other cases had interests to overlook the difference between the two, um, but deluded themselves into thinking that maximizing asset values would be the same as maximizing economic growth and productivity and all the things that we usually associate with uh, healthy capitalism and so on. And we need to recognize that the two are different and result in very different economic models and result in very different social models and outcomes. And I think if we could focus on returning to a growth orient, a growth and productivity oriented economy rather than an asset value economy, I think that would that would at least address uh, a core issue at the foundation of a lot of our problems. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, I'd love to direct folks to go check out the article as well. I I skimmed over that and uh, you enlightened me greatly on that topic. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have to agree with you on there on that one. So uh, we're, we're getting close to the end here. Any, any articles, topics you're working on currently that you're interested in? Um, one thing I'm, you know, I, this is maybe less substantive than um, some of the stuff we've been talking about, but I'm also interested, you know, there's been a lot of energy spent on, the realign political realignment on the right, um, kind of a new post post liberal or post neoliberal right, hmm. um, and there hasn't been actually as much focus on what I think are signs of some changing views or or maybe a nascent realignment happening on the left. Hmm. And what you see there, you know, you see kind of um, maybe some more and more articles coming at it from different perspectives, but all sort of urging the Democratic Party to get away from its kind of uh, cultural orientations and uh, often rather histrionic uh, cultural obsessions, whether it whether it has to do with uh, sort of styling themselves as uh, the last bulwark against racism and fascism, or whether it's kind of um, extreme pandemic uh, overcautiousness or what have you. Uh, anyway, there's a new kind of sense. Again, it's always couched in these terms of Democrats need to focus on the working class and so on. Um, and to my mind, it's been limited because it's it's been, in, you know, very much in electoral terms. It's sort of you're going to lose an election unless you change your message. And that may be true, but it's a bigger problem than just losing an election. And I think there could be an interesting dialogue actually happening there, uh, not not so much between maybe the Trump right and the Bernie left, which a lot of people thought about, but maybe between uh, the right and the centrist left, um, who on the one hand, I think, have a greater sense of responsibility and, and want to have uh, maybe do more on a lot of issues than Republican donors and Republican establishment do, um, but are kind of lacking in a couple things. One is uh, any sense of kind of the supply side um, to economic policy. Now, you know, in conventional Republican terms, that just means cutting taxes, uh, which doesn't work anymore. That just cutting taxes, you'll get higher stock market prices, but not much investment or anything like that. But nevertheless, that focus on, you know, increasing investment, increasing productivity uh, through a new suite of policy ideas and programs is something that actually the left could probably take or, or you know, the the kind of 
Democratic establishment even could actually take on if they wanted to Mm. pretty easily. Uh, The other thing that, you know, they would benefit from, you know, from kind of the, the right realignment, if you will, is this sense of people just having interests and not as not necessarily being guided by moral weakness or, or whatever. There's a, you know, the center left establishment now um, tends to cast everything, you know, anyone who doesn't agree with them, they seem to think is either deluded or the, the victim of misinformation or, you know, just subject to some kind of bad, bad actor somewhere or immoral immorality somewhere. Um, but it may just be that people have different interests and uh, you have to recognize that and to have more of a compromising approach rather than sort of say, you know, to, the foreign policy examples may be the most obvious ones. It may be the case that not everybody actually wants to be like you. They may not all want to have, you know, a democracy, uh, if you want to call it that, like you do. Maybe they have a different interest. Uh, you don't necessarily have to invade them or pretend that if you just take out the dictator, they're all going to love you. Um, maybe, maybe they, you know, you just have to recognize that people have different interests and compromise. And, you know, on the domestic policy front, it's the same thing. It may not be that, um, whatever, uh, certain white working class voters in West Virginia or whatever are inherently and irredeemably racist, uh, or the victim of some kind of Trump lie or something. It may be that they don't like your agenda, uh, and you need to either, figure out how to moderate your agenda or change your agenda to, to actually help them, or at least recognize their divergent interests and compromise with them and reach a kind of reasonable balance. Uh, anyway, that's a long winded way of saying that I think those kind of issues are sort of percolating around and it's something that maybe the right realignment's a little further ahead on. And, you know, if that actually could find a voice and, and find a constituency among the democratic party, as well, maybe especially among uh, the Democratic establishment, uh, you know, you might be able to see some fruitful collaboration there on on policy. You know, it's interesting because the I'd say the first half of our conversation sounded very defeatist. Uh, it's these people battling it out, and there's not really much I can do. Whereas you sound quite hopeful in in some aspects here, and so I'm just curious, you know, kind of to wrap it up here. What are your thoughts on 2024? Are are you hopeful? Are you worried? Is it just more of battling over who said what and who believes what? I lost, you won, no one really disagree everyone's disagreeing on the outcome or are, are you a little more hopeful? Uh I'm never hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh No, I what I would I think if you look at sort of mass media and social media, um, it's extremely depressing. And I don't really see any of that changing from sort of the worst level and really most simplistic and and stupid level of, of politics. But there is a world beyond that. And I think behind the scenes, you are starting to see more people, um, trying to be thoughtful, trying to take a serious approach to these issues recognizing i mean a lot of a lot of what drives this is sort of recognizing that the current partisan alignments don't really make any sense and and don't really mm-hmm. have a clear bearing on the real problems we face and i think be- behind the scenes more and more people um uh understand that uh but it's it's by no means you know um 
a, a victory lap or anything close to that yet. I, I think, it, you know, we're very much in a confused political environment. I, I think you'll see a lot of ups and downs changing. You know, the U.S. has gone, I think it's fairly unique in history where we've had so many back and forth elections, Republicans take Congress and then the Democrats take it and one side controls all three branches for a couple of years and loses it. Um, and what you're seeing is sort of everybody's, you know, uh, disaffected and no one's been able to really put forward a clear positive agenda to actually address real problems and win over a decisive coalition uh, that could really govern. Um, so again, I think behind the scenes, there, there are a lot of uh, reasons to be optimistic and, as much as I hate sort of generational political analysis, I think, you know, younger people in politics in particular um, are, are, are having different discussions and more productive discussions. Uh, but it's unfortunately, I think, going to be the case for a while that the, the major mass institutions, the, the largest donor groups, the old party establishments um, are going to be stuck in kind of a conventional partisan rut that we've had for a while. And it's, uh, you know, hopefully um, the people with better ideas can get, get into the right positions and start enacting them uh, before it's too late. Yeah, great. Well, you know, we've mentioned American affairs a few times. Um, is it, I wish I could just say right now, I can't remember. Is it .com, .org? .org. I think .org. if you do .com, it'll redirect there. But, oh, great. Uh, yeah, it's okay. .org, AmericanAffairsJournal.org. And then... Um, if are you on maybe you're not on social media I was blasting it pretty hard there at the end if folks want to like find more of your specific work or i do have i do have a, a twitter account um i don't engage with it uh, i sort of will, will put up you know if i write an article i'll put the link up there and that's about it it's uh, kind of uh, avoiding the social media cesspit is kind of my last jihad um <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, how well, how well that works, but, uh, it's the least it's, I can do. Yeah. It's um, challenging. But yeah. If people want to find, <laughs> if people want to find my content, they can, they can find it there. Okay. Wonderful. Great. Well, thanks for taking on this tour of, um, so many different topics and thoughts today. It's, it's been uh, a blast. Thank you. My pleasure. Before you go, got a quick new announcement for you. After the next couple episodes come out, we're going to end season one. And we're going to take the next six months then and dive down deep and create a podcast miniseries where we'll have the freedom to drill down into the core pillars of an empire. We'll stack all those up as different episodes. Each episode will be a single topic. And we'll look for a single thread running throughout. What brings all these crazy different topics and events together and that way we can better understand what we're going through today and what our future might look like. We're super excited. If you'd like to follow along, go to our website, click on subscribe. We're not gonna hit you with emails all the time, but we will let you know when the release date is. So thank you so much for being on this journey with us and we're very excited for what's in store ahead. <laughs>